Hi guys, I'm Courtney Fox. And I'm Kathleen Acker, and we would like to welcome you to Meg's Front Page. This is your podcast to bring you up close and personal with authors who have published recent articles in JMEG and to keep you up to date with the latest evidence-based practice. Welcome back to another episode of Meg's Front Page. Today we are joined by Dr. Kara King and Dr. Miguel Luna Russo, who recently published their JMEG article, Fertility Preserving Surgical Management of Caesarean Scar Ectopic Pregnancies, in conjunction with Dr. Christine Herr, who unfortunately could not be here today. Welcome, Dr. King and Dr. Luna Russo. Thank you for having us. We're so excited to be here. Thanks for the invitation. We're so excited to have you. And let's just right into it. So what was your inspiration behind this study? Were you starting to have more Caesarean Scar Pregnancies at the Cleveland Clinic? Kathleen, I'm so happy you asked that question. We are having so many C-section scar topic pregnancies. I feel like they're definitely increasing. You know, I'll have to ask Dr. Luna what he thinks our numbers are, but I would say we're probably getting, you know, a few a month right now. We become a high volume referral center. And so once you have that name, I feel like they start coming. And so, yeah, we've, we've been getting quite a few. It's really pushed us to be innovative and creative in how we manage these patients. Yeah, and, and actually, this important note is that that case, specific case in the paper, is actually our first case for you know Dr. King and myself at the Cleveland Clinic. I was a fellow during that time. Um, it's actually pretty cool. I didn't know that was our first little Luna. Wow, yeah. we've come so far over the past two years. I know we have. Yeah, and we we are doing um, a lot more. Uh, and now there's like, I mean, it's initially it was you know. Dr. King's, and now I've been getting referrals myself and being involved myself. And it's, it's, it's kind of a created, we've created a little team with MFM, created some protocols, and now the referrals are coming in even more frequently. Yeah, it's amazing that you're able to offer these options for women. I feel like in the past, they probably didn't know what opportunities or options they had for management of cesarean scar topics. So to publish something like this allows other providers to get an idea of how they can manage it if they had a different technique in the past that they had done. So how did you come up with a surgical technique? So, you know, it's, it's a good question. And I think ultimately, you know, surgical principles hold true independent from what procedure you're doing. And so I think things that are really important, no matter what you're doing are factors such as visualization, hemostasis, tension, counter tension, knowing your anatomy really well. And that was one aspect of my fellowship at McGee that was, that was really focused on in that we are going to teach you all of these concrete foundations. And that way, when you get out, you can really tackle anything that comes into your door. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping Miguel feels that way too. But I think since he was my first fellow, but I think um, when we, when we, when we tackle these cases, as long as you optimize those factors, I think everything else typically will fall into place. What do you think, Miguel? No, I think that's, that's, you know, we always talk about when we do our conferences and we continue on with surgical education is, you know, maintaining those health stadium principles, hemostasis, delicate management of a tissue. And that's all about, and also comes with knowledge of anatomy and the procedure that you're doing. I think that as we've done, continued to do these procedures, we've, we've refined it and kind of made 
kind of made it, I guess, I don't want to say perfect, but, you know, we've, we've practiced and we've picked the good parts from our, the, the good portions of the procedures uh, that we've done and continued on with those. Um, you know, our vasopressin injections, our, the use of the instruments that we have, which is the William cystoscopic needle, et cetera. And I think that just, you know, continuing on and basing everything on those good surgical principles is key. And, you know, the word perfect always makes me hesitate because when I hear perfect in my brain, it means we're done innovating. Right. And I don't even realize that I shy away from that, but I said something to my kids recently where I'm like, oh my goodness, great job, Anders. That's perfect. And he looked at me and he's like, mama, nothing's perfect. And I was like, oh my gosh, what have I done to my children? <laughs> but, I, <laughs> but I think, um, you know, when I think about you know, innovating in the operating room. Again, I go back to Tedley a lot because he echoes in my brain all the time. But I think about this triangle of having knowledge at the bottom and then skill next and at the very top creativity, right? And so I think once you have the knowledge and skill foundation there, then this aspect of creativity can really start surfacing. And just like Miguel said, you know, with our first case, we had really great principles and we did what I think was really a solid technique, but every case we be debrief afterwards, right? We have a multidisciplinary conference and we talk about what felt good, what could be improved, how could, how should we change this? What should we continue doing? And I think that multidisciplinary collaboration is really important. And that instantaneous feedback right after the case is also really important. And also just, also just keeping track with your videos, like as also sharing the images between all faculty and trainees, it, like in, a, in the conference that we have, but if not everybody does that in that in their institution, then you know recording and and carrying on that you know that uh, trend of reviewing and improving uh, should happen. And I think actually that segues really nice in, nicely into our next question. How do you recommend people go about coming up with new surgical techniques or wanting to try something new and creative while also still trying to maintain the standard of care? I think that one is very important is that you have to be, you have to keep, uh, the first thing is always have those surgical principles that we talked about in the, in the, in the background and then innovate based on that. And I think that um, once you feel comfortable doing something, specifically a specific procedure or, or just operating on specific things, and then, then, then innovation should start there. I also think that having partners and a group around you that uh, allows for creativity helps because I know that when I was a fellow and to, to this day, we bounce, Dr. King and I bounce ideas off of each other all the time. Um, and that's, I think that's key. Could not agree more. I am so blessed to have Miguel as my partner now. I just, I'm, I'm blessed to have him every single day. I, I adore having you, Miguel. And I think the other part is cross-collaboration, not only between subspecialties within the OBGYN, but getting out of your specialty. And I do this a lot with surgical coaching in that a lot of the people I coach or the people who coach me are outside of OBGYN. And I am a firm believer that innovation truly happens at the crossroads of different disciplines, sometimes even outside of medicine. And so not only do we suggest and really emphasize in our fellowship, watching your own surgical videos. That is a must. We record every case for Christmas this year. I gave all my fellows a little lanyard of a USB. I told them those are their BFF bracelet from me, BFF necklace from me. Everything needs to be burned over. 
but also watching videos for the procedure that you're not doing, like watching procedures that you don't do actually can be really helpful at seeing what instruments are they using? What ports are they using? What are their port placements? Are they airplaning or not? Right? So sometimes getting out of what you're doing can bring an entire new lens of curiosity into it. And then having someone else watch the video with you, like making the invisible visible is what we, what we say a lot. And I think that really spurs this, this spiritivity. Yeah, it's really innovative of you all to, to take this technique and then to create a video to share with others. So we're very grateful. So I'm going to take it back to the patient aspect of this type of procedure. What do you talk to them when you're gaining consent for this procedure? It's very patient-centric and goal-centric. For example, um, in those patients who are fertility-preserving, of course, you ha always have to include, you know, the potential of bleeding or not having enough tissue to reconstruct the uterus, and therefore, you know, in the end, it may not be a uh, fertility-preserving procedure. Um, I think that the other biggest counseling point is the potential for, for blood loss, which can be high in these, in these cases, um, which, you know, in, in, you know, more brings in morbidity into the case. Um, and also just expectations for uh, the future as in what's a potential of recurrence. This could happen again. Um, I think that's the most important part of the counseling. What do you think? Kim? Yeah, you, you nailed it. Uh, I think just like you said, keeping it very patient centered because no patients present the same way. No patients have the same priorities or the same history or the same risk factors. And so what I, what I find myself always gravitating towards procedure wise are these procedures that are not cookie cutter, right? So like C-section scar ectopics, I love them because no two are the same, right? Malarian anomalies. I love them because they're none of them the same, right? Stage four endo. What that means is that you really have to take the time up front to discuss with the patient all of these options. And then just, just like um, Miguel said in regard to blood loss, you also have to bring up the possibility of hysterectomy, even in patients that you're trying to preserve the uterus. It can be a really emotional discussion. And even if they want to preserve their uterus that, and we're trying to preserve it, it's not our plan to do the hysterectomy. But I think setting the expectation that these are high-risk procedures um, and just talking about that upfront can help align expectations early on. So in your paper, you, you discussed um, three major techniques to restore normal anatomy. Can you walk us through those? No, I think, I think that when you're talking about, you know, these, uh, these principles, I think knowing anatomy, and that's one of the things is creation of your avascular spaces. So, you know, in these cases, you're going to go into the vesicle vaginal space. In some, in some instances, you can end up in the pre-vesicle space and you need to understand where you are and know where you are. Um, in other cases, you may need to choose to ligate the uterines at their origin. So you need to know where your pararectal space is. Um, so it's very important just to know where the, these avascular spaces are and feel comfortable um, developing them so that you are, you know, in, in the right place at where you want to be um, and not make any mistakes. Yeah. And then the second technique that I think we talk about is understanding exactly where the endometrial cavity is. And I think this is important for C-section scar topics as well as isthmocele repairs. Sometimes it can be really obvious where the endometrial cavity is, and sometimes it can be a little bit difficult to identify. We've played around with different techniques in identifying the cavity. I think having 
um, I think doing a hysteroscopy to begin with can be really helpful. So the hysteroscopy can tell you exactly where that defect is. Sometimes we do concurrent hysteroscopy and laparoscopy because that light that you see underneath that defect can be, re can be really helpful at identifying it. We've played around with putting a uterine manipulator in and not putting a uterine manipulator in. Ultimately, I love putting a uterine manipulator in with a cup. I think maybe during the video that we showed for JMIG, I, I don't think we actually put a cup in that time, but I've evolved to actually putting a cup in because inherently these patients have had a previous C-section and so there's oftentimes bladder adhesions. And so putting a cup in will help kind of mobilize that bladder down and identifying that anatomy. Uh, the other thing that sometimes we'll do to identify the endometrial cavity is putting a Pratt dilator in with a laparoscope in, putting it into the fundus and almost kind of dragging it very gently down on that anterior wall of the uterus until it kind of pops into that defect. Ah. And then you can, yeah. And then you can kind of yeah. see that poking through and then you can just make your incision right over it. So and also, I'll also say sometimes we've, we've put a Foley catheter into the uterus and blown up the balloon really big. And then that balloon will pop up in, into that cavity too. Oh. So this is one of those, you know, that top of the triangle creativity that we played around with until we found something that felt good. But I think one thing that has really stuck through for me is going to be that colpotomizer cup just to help me with the bladder flap. And then we kind of switch between different ways of finding the cavity, depending on the anatomy. Yeah, and, and, and the other point to add to the, to the endometrial, identifying the endometrial cavity is... It's important to know because in, in closure, maybe it's important. You don't, we don't want to include uh, suture material inside of the endometrial cavity um, so that we can decrease, you know, scarring in that area. Um, there's some studies have, that have shown from C-section scar, like C-section uh, closures where um, inclusion of the endometrial cavity uh, during the closure with uh, running and locking techniques, for example, will increase your chances of having intimacy repair. That has absolutely almost nothing to do with repairing a, a C-section scar defect, but it's kind of an extrapolation of data and experiences from other you know, uh, situations where um, we've kind of decided that that's probably the best route. And what, what techniques do you use to help minimize blood loss in these cases? So vasopressin is your friend in these cases. Um, all around circumferentially in the myometrium uh, around the, the, the defect. Um, Preoperative uh, use of embolization has, we've used that before. Um, in the video, you can see some embolization beads in that specific one that uh, that patient was embolized before. You can always uh, ligate the uterines at their origin and also ligate the uh, uterovarian ligaments or the IP ligaments. Any other one to add, Dr. King? I th yeah, I think you nailed our, our main go-tos. You know, in the beginning, we did a lot of uterine artery embolization on these patients, and we've really moved away from that now. We've just found that we don't really need to do that to maintain great hemostasis. In the specific patient in this video, she was very non-compliant, like kept leaving and just not coming back again for weeks and weeks at a time. We were fearful that something catastrophic is going to happen with rupture and bleeding. And so for her, we did do a uterine artery, artery embolization. The only other component that I'm going to bring up, which I know is going to be a little controversial and I don't quite know, I mean, there's no evidence on this yet. And I, we could have a discussion about it is uh, intrasac methotrexate injection. This literature split regarding, does this help like stop some of the growth, growth, maybe involute the pregnancy? Does that decrease any blood flow going to the pregnancy? 
I don't have a great answer for this. There's just not enough evidence out there. And so right now, our typical algorithm, if the patient comes in and is stable, we typically do have MFM do an IM and an intrasac methotrexate injection. I don't think it hurts, meaning I think that if we can stop the rapidly dividing cells and involute the pregnancy a little bit, I think like, theoretically it makes sense. That's decreased blood flow, but I don't have any evidence to back that up right now. Awesome. And um, one thing you also did mention in the paper, which I saw in a video at one of your presentations at AGL was um, the temporary occlusion of the vessels with the clips. And I remember thinking that must be so scary to put, you know, these clips on the uterine arteries. Like I have never done that before. And then you were like, oh, and then we practice by putting them on the round ligament first, then taking them off. And I was like, what a creative idea to practice something that's real in kind of like a lower risk setting. So I love this. I love this creativity pyramid. <laughs> the other thing that we do is I forgot to mention is that we do often inject vasopressin in the cervix. Um, just because the proximity of the cervix it, to the, to the, to the, to the, to the pregnancy. And um, we, it helps with the hysteroscopy also for your dilation. Um, but that's another technique that we use that we have absolutely no evidence to back up, but it's a, it's something that we kind of extrapolate from, uh, Dr. Uh, Linda Bradley, AKA mama Bradley. Mm -hmm. This is what I'm saying. You're bringing back the, the flashbacks of this procedure. So when you're talking about doing new procedures, right. Innovating in the OR, one thing that I highly recommend is loading the boat, right? So if you're doing something for the first time, or you're trying something new in regard to a technique or procedure, load the boat with a lot of really smart people. And so we loaded the boat with mama B mama B is Dr. Bradley. She knows it all. And so we had her in there just in case we needed help with something hysteroscopically. And I was up top with Miguel. I want to make sure we had someone down below. And so we had dropped the scope for this patient and she went down below and did this big intracervical vasopressin injection. I was just planning on doing an injection, you know, with my Williams needle up top or my 23 gauge butterfly up top, but down below when Dr. Bradley was injecting, we dropped the scope and the uterus was blanched white. Do you remember Luna? Yeah. Like I dropped my scope. I'm like, what happened to the uterus? Why is it completely white? And mama B has her like spinal needle down below. And I was like, whoa, mama, she got it. So now I realize like how much blanching and intracervical injection actually does. It's amazing. And then um, just last question, what do you see for the future of these cesarean scar topics as the rate of C-section studs continue to rise due to age, um, medical complexity of patients? I think we're going to see more and more of it. Uh, we need to get better at actually defining it um, and, you know, making sure that we have clear diagnostic criteria. And once that starts happening, then K-series come, come, start coming and then as the volume increases, as you start diagnosing more, because you have the adequate criteria and your eyes are open and you have a, little, uh, more, a higher index of suspicion, then we'll get to, you know, trials and looking at specific techniques and looking at what's good, uh, what's better or what's, you know, you know, not good. Hopefully we will have enough volume in the future to be able to contribute something to the literature regarding, you know, this specific procedure and what's the, and the best way to do it. Totally agree. And my brain's also going to the space of why are we having so many, right? Because some patients with just one C-section are having these huge C-section scar topics. My brain's going back like five steps of, of like, is something with the C-section increasing our risk, meaning like suture material or like how much, like how many layers they're using or 
Luna knows this is like <laughs> one of my biggest pet peeves. He knows what I'm going to say, but all of these hemostatic agents, I feel like for these C-sections, at least in the op notes that I've been reading, they just dump a bunch of hemostatic agents into this space to help with hemostasis. But in my mind, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just wondering, again, I have no evidence in this, but what does that do to scarring and healing and all of those things? So my brain's going down the path of exactly what Luna said. We need numbers. We need a, we need a registry. We need to evaluate our outcomes. When you look at future pregnancies after these repairs, all those things, but also going back a few steps and just looking at the C sections themselves. Are there any factors in the OR during that C-section that can decrease this risk in the future? Yeah, because if you think about just going down that point of the hemostatic agents, I mean, most of those hemostatic agents, the ones that we see the most are Arista. And, and, and Arista's, um, and, or even Flosio, these, these are inflammatory, you know, they, they pro-inflammatory agents. When you already have a, a, a scar that is healing with suture material in it, more inflammation, and therefore you know, you have a lot of tissue destruction. So we, we do need to look back, I agree, into, you know, what could potentially be causing these um, defects and to um, uh, implantations of ectopics. I look forward to reading your next JMIG article about it, Dr. Luna. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> I wish Luna was still my fellow so I could be like, hey, Miguel, would you please whip up this IRB for me? <laughs> But we have new fellows for that, right? We <laughs> have new fellows. <laughs> no, it's very interesting, very innovative of you all to kind of think outside the box and figure out what the next steps are for this project so that we can standardize it for other surgeons to use. Because I think we're all going to be seeing a lot more of these C-section scar topics. And so we need to give the best care for our patients. So. I love it. Yeah. We need like a, we need like a big national database, right? I, I always just, and I think about just making these little databases or registries for specific institutions. We need big numbers, right? We just need to work together, stronger together. I always say that work together for our patients for sure. Yeah. That, I think that, they would, that this would be something if somebody would be interested in creating a collaboration through uh, the um, fellow, let me see. FPRN. Yeah. FPR, FPRN. Yeah. It's, you know, for these specific things that are super interesting and are not as, you know, um, frequent, um, having a lot of, having a huge network of people um, and, and centers yes. is, is key. And that's it for this episode of Mixed Front Page. We'll see you next time. Thanks. We're very grateful for your time. So thank you so much. You're welcome, you You're guys. Welcome. Thank we'll you. see you in the Rockies, baby. The Rockies. Oh, yeah. Colorado. Woo. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Take guys. Care. Have Bye. a good rest of the night. Thank you. Bye. Bye.